Good to see you again. I'm going to ask you to take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, we'll be reading there in just one second. And the question that we're going to discuss this evening comes uh, straight from Luke 17 in a parable that Jesus tells there. But before we get there, there's something very important that we need to talk about. Um, For quite some time now, I've been aware of an atrocity that's been happening in our society. Um, Something that used to be benign and reasonable has, has really morphed and mutated into something horrendous and horrific. And if you're paying attention, then you'll notice that this has spread to nearly every place of business. It is all around us. It is in places it never was before. And for that reason, I just can't be silent any longer about this public crisis. I want you guys to know this evening that tipping is out of control. (laughs) And I think you know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? Tipping is just completely out of control. It used to be that there were a handful of situations where it was reasonable to give a tip or to expect a tip, right? You tipped your waitress. You tipped the lady who cuts your hair, which I forgot to do for a long time until I found out about that. And then you tipped the pizza delivery guy. And there's a few other people that you tip, but but that's about it. Not anymore. Now, tipping is everywhere. They expect me to leave a tip when I buy a burrito from Chipotle. They ask me to leave a tip when I buy a $3 cup of coffee at Starbucks. Which raises other questions like, how much are you supposed to tip on a $3 tab? Because if you leave $1, that's 33%. That's ridiculous. I can't do that. But if you tip like... 10 or 15%, then you're leaving like 42 cents, which that seems ridiculous to me. Who tips 42 cents? That just seems offensive. And then, and then at the same time, they always ask the question in the same way, right? They always say, hey, you know, uh, just, just insert your card and then you'll have to answer a few questions, which is not true. You're not answering a few questions. What you're doing is you're getting a subtle guilt trip for not paying more than you have to pay. Tipping is out of control. And we haven't even talked about the most important part of that, which is, how am I supposed to invite you to services after I just refuse to tip you? It has ruined the whole process of evangelism at business places. I hope you know that I'm joking. And if you're here in the food service industry, I uh, hope you don't take offense. I just bring this up to make a point. And that is this, that... That typically, typically in those situations, I decline to leave a tip. And I do that be, for a specific reason. Because in my mind, I know that the man who's building my burrito bowl is doing something that is merely his job. When he builds my burrito bowl or when she pours my coffee, she's not doing anything extraordinary. She's just doing What she should do, right? She and her employer have made an agreement that he would pay her a certain amount of money and she would perform a certain job. And when she builds my burrito bowl or when he pours my coffee, that's what she's doing. She's doing her duty. She's doing her job. She's not doing anything extraordinary. 
And to put it simply, in my mind, that's what a tip is for, right? It's when you do something that is extra credit, something beyond what is normal, something extraordinary. Regardless of how you feel about that, I want you to keep that idea in your mind as we turn to Luke 17 and consider the parable of Jesus here. Keep in mind that idea of doing what it is your duty to do, doing what you ought to have done, because that's what this parable is all about. Luke 17, Jesus tells this parable, and it's one that we don't often talk about, and once we read it, you'll understand why, because it really is a parable that makes us uncomfortable. We don't talk about this parable, but in it, Jesus asks a piercing question that I think, if we properly understand it, should really reset our perspective as children of God. It should really reset our perspective of how we live our entire lives. Luke 17, beginning in verse 7. Listen to this parable. Jesus says, Which of you... Having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat. But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too. When you do all the things which are commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. So once you read it through, you begin to understand why we avoid that parable. Because in that parable, it really seems like Jesus is teaching a message that is confusing, perplexing, troubling, and quite frankly, harsh. But it reveals something important. Jesus says, look, which of you, if you have a slave or if you have a servant, which of you, after he does a hard day's work, thanks him for the work that he does? He says that's not really the way it works when you have that kind of relationship. When a servant goes out in the field and works all day long, when he comes into the house, he doesn't switch roles with his master. The master doesn't become the servant. The master doesn't say, oh, you've been working all day in the field. Come inside. Let me do you a favor because you worked all day in the field for me. Come inside and I'll make dinner for you. Put up your feet. Relax. He doesn't say that. He says, no. When you come in, I want you to get right back to work and I want you to make me dinner. And before you do that, I want you to clothe yourself properly before you do any of that. And then after all of that is done, then you can feed yourself. That sounds really harsh and it makes you wonder why in the world is that in the Bible? Because it sounds mean. But here's the point. Why does the master treat the servant that way? And the answer is because this is not a partnership. That's not the way that relationship works. He doesn't thank the slave and he doesn't say, hey, let's switch roles. Because in this sort of relationship, the servant has not done anything extraordinary, even though he spends all day working for his master. He has simply done what he is supposed to do under the terms of their relationship. Now, let me be very clear. 
just in case I need to say this. This in no way is meant to condone the practice of slavery or is meant to make a commentary on the rightness or wrongness of it. What it is meant to do is it is meant to take a human practice and it is supposed to help us see our relationship with God from a certain perspective. Listen to what he says in verse 10. This is where the key to this whole parable is. He says, so you too... When you do all the things which are commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. And so understand that Jesus is not giving any kind of endorsement of slavery in this passage. But what he is doing is he's saying, look, you as children of God need to see yourself from a certain perspective. One of the ways you need to see yourself is you are a slave of God. That is true for all of us. We are slaves of God. We are slaves to righteousness, as is written in Romans 6 and verse 22. And as slaves of God, as servants of God, we need to recognize that it is our fundamental duty To serve God with every fiber of our being. To give God every ounce of everything you are is what you ought to do. To give God your life, as we talked about this morning, is not an extraordinary gift that you give to him. It is not an extra credit project for those Christians who are high achievers. It's not something that's deserving of a tip. To give God everything is simply what you and I ought to do. That's the point of the parable. You get a little bit of a better sense of that when you get a taste for the context. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 17, then you begin to understand why Jesus tells this parable and why he brings it up when he does. And while you do that, let me click ahead because I forgot to... Put the picture up there. Oh, and I forgot to do that. And that. Sorry. Wait, and that. Okay, sorry. I do that probably once a sermon. Anyway. You begin to understand why Jesus tells this parable when you begin reading and you look at the discussion, you look at the scenario that's happened at the beginning of this chapter. In verse 1, he said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. And so Jesus begins this passage by talking about stumbling blocks. And he says, he says, you need to make sure that you're not a stumbling block to your brothers and sisters, which by the side, it's actually interesting, this discussion about stumbling blocks, because usually when we talk about stumbling blocks, we talk about. Hey, you need to make sure that you don't do something that's going to lead your brother into sin. So we say, hey, don't tempt your buddy at school to drink alcohol. Or we say, hey, young lady, you need to make sure you cover up when you go to the beach so you don't make it easier for a man to have a lustful thought towards you. We talk about stumbling blocks in that way. Do you know who the stumbling block is in Luke 17? It's the person who won't forgive. That's the person who's the stumbling block, which is how it leads into the rest of the discussion there. But notice that what he's saying here is 
You need to make sure that you're not a stumbling block. You need to make sure that you forgive your brothers. You need to make sure you forgive them. Whatever it takes, you forgive. Even if that means that your brother offends you, hurts you, sins against you seven times in a single day, guess what you do? You forgive him every single time. Which we know this passage, so that's not that challenging to us, is it? But think about it for a second. I want you to imagine that your husband or your wife sinned against you seven times in a day. How's life going to be at your house at 10 p.m. that night? Jesus says, forgive him. Every time. And notice how his disciples respond in verse 5. I love this. Jesus says, no matter how many times he sins against you, forgive him. And the disciples say to the Lord, increase our faith. In other words, they're saying, how in the world are we supposed to do that? Jesus says in verse 6, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. Now that passage does not mean what I thought it meant when I was six, which is if you believe in God, then you can move things with your mind. That's what I thought it meant. I really did. And I never, I was a big struggle of faith that I had when I was little because I couldn't have telekinesis. (laughs) But what it means is when you see things the way God sees them and when you understand the spiritual truths, you will find the power within yourself to do incredible things like forgive somebody seven times in a day. And so what Jesus does is he tells this parable because he wants to help them see things from the right perspective. He wants them to understand where they stand in their relationship with God. Because when they understand their relationship with God, that is going to empower them to do something as incredible as forgiving somebody seven times in a day. And so he tells this parable because he wants his apostles to understand that we are God's servants. We are his slaves. We are slaves to righteousness. Again, as is written in Romans 6 and verse 22, he tells this parable because he wants his apostles to understand that forgiving your brother for the seventh time that day is not extra credit. It's not something you do to get a tip. What it is, is what you ought to do. Because you owe God everything. And I got to tell you, I'm not sure that we get there. I'm not sure that's the way we look at our lives or that's the way we look at our relationship with God. When you think about the way, when you think about your relationship with God, how do you, how do you envision that relationship? What does it look like to you? Some people look at their relationship with God like he is some sort of doting caretaker. Or as you've heard before, I'm sure, he's some kind of grandfather in the skies, right? And you may say, oh, that's not the way I see God. But if you're ever the kind of person who thinks, you know what God wants? God wants me to be what? God, all God wants is for, you said it, that's exactly right. God wants me to be happy, right? And that's what we've done. When we think that way, when we think the one thing that God wants is my happiness... We're not looking at him the right way. In fact, what we've done is we've taken this whole dynamic and we've flipped it. Because when I say all God wants is for me to be happy, what I'm saying is that God's whole purpose in my life is to serve me instead of for me to serve him. 
So to look at God like a doting caretaker is not correct. Some people look at God like, like we have some kind of symbiotic partnership with him, right? We scratch each other's backs. So, God, I go, to sun, I go to church on Sunday. I worship you a little bit. I do some good things in my life. I contribute to your church. And then you bring blessings into my life. I scratch your back. You scratch mine. That's how it works. Not really. Some people look at their relationship with God like he is some sort of school teacher. In other words... There are some Christians who get C's, some who get B's, and then there are those crazy Christians who get like A pluses. I don't know why they do all that. And so they look at their relationship as if I can hold something back from God. Not everything. I'll give him most everything. I'll give him a lot of stuff way more than anybody else. But I'm not going to give that A plus kind of Christianity stuff because I just don't want to. And I can probably get into heaven without giving that much. He's a school teacher. That's not how the Bible presents it. Luke 17 and verse 10 says, So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded, you say, We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Do you understand what that means, brothers and sisters? That means that if you wake up tomorrow and you live, you live a day of absolute spiritual perfection. If you wake up tomorrow and literally do everything right, you live tomorrow the way Jesus would live tomorrow if he were living in your body. Then when you get home at night and you crash onto your bed, and you certainly would be tired, but when you crash onto your bed and you close your eyes just before you go to sleep, if you lived a perfect day, all you could say is, I did what I should have done. Not that I deserve some sort of extra credit. Not what an amazing Christian I am. Not, hey, look how much better I live today than everybody else. The only thing that you and I can say is, I did what ought to have been done with this day. That's the perspective that we ought to have. We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Now, I don't know about you, but I think about all of that, and that's really daunting, right? That's overwhelming to me. Because what we're talking about is we're talking about the fact that God has literally called us to perfection. Sinless perfection. Don't let anyone convince you of anything otherwise. That is exactly what it means to walk worthy. If you're going to perfectly walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called, that means sinless perfection every day of your life. And that's overwhelming. But it is the proper perspective. It is the way the Bible tells us we ought to look at ourselves. And it is the way that we ought to look at our relationship with God. That we are slaves to righteousness. We owe Him everything. And I think, brothers and sisters, if we learn to look at ourselves and look at our world in that way. If we learn to look at our life from a servant's perspective. I think it'll change our lives in some very important ways. So what happens? What happens to your life when you realize, when you look at yourself as an unworthy slave? This is the first thing I think it'll do. I think, first of all, it will in you eradicate 
every trace of spiritual arrogance that you may have hidden away in your heart. If you look at yourself and you can say about yourself the same thing that Jesus tells us to say in verse 10, it will eradicate every trace of spiritual arrogance. You know, one of the temptations that we, honestly anybody has who's been a Christian for any period of time is to start looking at all the people around us and start comparing ourselves to others. And one of the things that we love to do is we start, we, we love to play this game of my life versus their life. In my sin list versus their sin list. Let's just be honest. There are lots of people in the world who have a sin list that's a whole lot longer than yours. Yes, we understand all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all need the grace of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, there are some people we look at and say, well, I haven't done that. And I haven't done that or that or that. Look at my list. It's not good. I need grace. But it doesn't look like that. It's very easy for us to become like that Pharisee in Luke 18. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. Look at all the good stuff I've done. Look at how I love you. Look at how I serve you. God, aren't you so glad that I'm one of the people serving you? You know what the Pharisee's trying to do in that passage? He's looking for a tip. Sometimes that's exactly what we do. We look at everybody else and all the stuff they've done wrong. And we look at ourselves and we say, they are unworthy and I am worthy. We need to understand, brothers and sisters, that when you compare your life to the person next to you, you can easily find a way to puff yourself up and think that you're something great. But that's the wrong comparison to make. The comparison that we ought to make is not me versus them. The comparison that we ought to make in our lives is who I am and what I've done versus who I should be and what I could have done. I want you to think about that for a minute. When you compare the life that you live with the life that you ought to have lived, How can you do anything but crumble? How can you do anything but say, I'm an unworthy servant? When you compare the life that you do live with the life that you ought to live, how many hours have you wasted? How many people have you hurt instead of loved? How many lost people have you ignored Instead of trying to reach. How many prayers have you left unprayed? How many acts of kindness have you left undone? When you compare the life you live with the life that you ought to have lived. How can you do anything but say, I am an unworthy servant. And I haven't done nearly the things that I ought to have done. If you see yourself that way, it will eliminate any trace of spiritual arrogance that may be inside of you. But it will do this as well, I believe. That when you see yourself as an unworthy servant, it will compel you and drive you to do even the most difficult things that we are called to do. I don't need to sugarcoat it for you, and I won't. 
The truth is that some of the commands that we're given as Christians are extremely difficult. And I think you know that's true. We see one example of that here in Luke 17. Forgive somebody even if he sins against you seven times in a day. That is not an easy command to fulfill. But we see other examples of that too. Like this example in Matthew 19 and verse 12. For there are eunuchs who are born that way from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men. And there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. You know what that means, brothers and sisters? That there are some people who have to live celibate lifestyles for the sake of being in the kingdom of heaven. Do you understand that? Or how about this one? Let me get myself into trouble. 1 Peter 3, 1, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives. Especially in our culture, that command which says that a wife ought to be submissive to her husband. And I think I can read into this and it says, even if he is a not nice person. That's not an easy command. Or how about this one? Matthew 5, 33 through 39. Matthew 5, 38 through 39. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. I wonder, brothers and sisters, if we sometimes look at commands like that and we think that's extra credit Christianity. Do you really expect... That if I get stuck in some kind of weird marriage, divorce, and remarriage situation, do you really expect if God really asked me to live a celibate lifestyle that that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life? Do you really expect that when my husband is, is, am I allowed to say (laughs) S-T-U-P-I-D? Do you really expect me to be submissive to him when he's like that, when he doesn't listen, when he doesn't care, when he's not nice? Do you really expect that if somebody comes and slaps me in the face... I'm actually really, totally, legitimately going to turn the other cheek. Do you really expect that? And the answer is yes. Actually, this story just came to mind. I'll go ahead and tell it to you. I was preaching a sermon one time from Romans chapter 12. And I made a point that we return, we return good for evil, right? So when people do mean things to us, we do nice things to them. And so I had one point in the sermon where I said, you know what? You know what, wives? If your husband's rude to you one morning, you know what Romans 12 tells you to do? It means that you need to make sure you go out to the store and you cook him his favorite thing for dinner. And I literally had people laughing out loud when I said that. That's the way we look at it, right? We look at it and say, whoa, that's an incredible standard. But God doesn't really expect that from me. Yes, he does. We need to recognize who we are. That these commands, even the most difficult ones, they are not extra credit assignments. They are not what we do if we want a tip. It is not above and beyond the call of duty. It is simply what we have been called to do. And so, brothers and sisters, when you see yourself for what you really are, when you see yourself from the servant's perspective, then you begin to understand that even those most difficult commands are not something that we bypass or overlook. It's not something that we can just ignore. That is what we have been called to do. And finally, let me say this. That I believe when we have the servant's perspective... It'll fill us with joy and gratitude. 
It is really daunting to think that it is our duty to lead a perfect life. But that doesn't change the fact that it is. To live a perfect life is what we ought to do. But that reality should not discourage you or dishearten you or overwhelm you. Now, if you're the kind of person who is determined to be prideful, if you're a little bit like me and you want to earn what you get and pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, I'm not sure if that works in Florida, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think you understand. If you're determined to do everything by yourself and earn everything and merit your own salvation, then the idea that you've been called to live a perfect life, yeah, that's overwhelming. It should discourage you and it should dishearten you because you will not and you have not. But it should not discourage you if you're comfortable with humility. Because the amazing message of the gospel is that there is grace, there is mercy, and there is hope. Abundant and overflowing even for unworthy slaves like us. In Christ, even worthless servants can boast. Because his blood redeems all of that. Galatians 6 and verse 14, Paul says, But may it never be that I would boast. Except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul says, despite all the wonderful things that he does, I'm not going to boast in anything except for the fact that I have found salvation in the cross of Christ. And if you accept that, if you accept that his blood can cleanse any sin, if you accept that his grace can cover the areas in which you have been deficient as as his servant, then how could you do anything besides fall on your face full of joy and gratitude, thanking God for his favor and for his kindness? If you really do see yourself as an unworthy servant, and you really do understand what Christ has done for you, How could you do anything but shout for joy? There's one more thing I want to add on the end of this that I think is important. It's a story that I really love about this little boy named Jack Hoffman. In the spring of 2013, the Nebraska Cornhuskers had a spring game. They had a scrimmage game. And it was just a normal day for them, but it was a special day for this little boy, Jack Hoffman. He had brain cancer, but he also had a huge dream of one day playing on the Nebraska football team, which, because of his medical difficulties, made it pretty much impossible that was ever going to happen. But one day in 2013, the football team decided to do something special for him, and they invited him down to the football field. They put him in a little jersey, and they decided to let him run one play. And so when the center snapped the ball, the quarterback handed it off to little Jack. And he scampered all the way down the field and scored a 69-yard rushing touchdown. Somebody said, what? The defense was letting him score. It wasn't. (laughs) And when I think about that, I think to myself, I am Jack Hoffman, right? Look at that picture. Do you see that boy? It's kind of small. But his head is like up to the lower back of these offensive linemen, okay? There is no way 
that he belongs on that field. Not any chance. He doesn't deserve to be there. He doesn't belong to be there. And if everybody was playing the way they were supposed to be playing, there ain't no way he's ever going to score a touchdown. But because of the kindness and the grace and the mercy of the coaches and the Nebraska defense, he was able to rush all the way for the touchdown. When I think about the grace of God, that's, that's what I see. That the truth is, I don't even belong on the field, considering what I've done. But what God expects me to do is, even though I don't belong, even though I haven't earned it, even though I'm, I'm not right to be there, he wants me to run as fast as I possibly can. And as long as I do that, he'll make sure the rest is taken care of. At the end of the day, we are all unworthy slaves. And thanks be to God that even though we've been unworthy, even though we don't deserve to be on the field, Christ has made it possible for us to find cleansing and forgiveness. He's made it possible for us to serve God with our lives, even though we have failed so miserably in the past. But it is our duty to rise from that, to see ourselves as slaves of God, And to give him everything we've got. So, if you will, take some time today or tomorrow. Find a moment free from distraction, a place of quiet. And ask yourself that question. Am I I giving God everything I have? Am I really living as a slave of righteousness? You may be sitting here this evening, and I want you to know that if you've never been saved, you are not worthy of salvation. But because of Christ, that does not mean that you cannot receive it. The Bible says that anybody who believes in Jesus is willing to confess his name before men, repent of their sins. Anyone who's willing to do that can be baptized in water in the name of Jesus. To have their sins washed away, they can rise to walk in newness of life, newness of life as slaves to God. And slaves of righteousness with the hope of heaven in their hearts. If we can help you do that, or if you have any other need, we invite you to come to the front while we stand and while we sing.